Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 3rd, we are studying 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. St. Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his ministry among them. Even though it was only for a short time, they were witnesses of his faithfulness to the Lord's gospel and of his love for them as the Lord's church. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Mark Bars. Pastor Bars serves as the senior pastor at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Bars, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. Good morning, Pastor Apple. So, Pastor Bars, we are in now the second chapter of First Thessalonians, the second day of this series. Christ is surely coming with its Advent themes for us. Just give us a, a brief refresher of what Paul has covered so far in this epistle. Well, it might be helpful to note this, first of all, that it, it seems from the evidence that we have from the book of Acts, particularly, that the journey then, the time, the journey that took Paul to Thessalonica, his time there relatively brief, but that this letter, even both letters, follow quite soon after he was there. Part of that is because he didn't, he wasn't able to stay as long as he would have desired, but was compelled by brothers, by fellow Christians to move on. So when he addresses the Thessalonians, he he is really trying to restore and renew a relationship that was relatively brief and yet a deep and profound and impactful, clearly, as he shared the gospel with them, but I, I think impactful on Paul, Silas as well, who traveled with him. So in the first chapter, he has, he has affirmed their, their faith, how it has been actually heard and reported around the region uh, that the Thessalonians uh, were faithful followers of the Messiah, of the Christ. And he is ready to encourage them, since he is, hasn't been able to spend time with them in an extended way, as he did, for example, with the, with, would with the Corinthians, that he, needs, he knows that they need this encouragement as they're separated from each other. So for the first chapter, it seems, really deals with the Thessalonians and their response to the ministry that Paul had for them as short as it was. And then the second chapter, it seems as we'll, we'll see Paul's reminding them of, of his side of the story. I mean, and that's maybe not the right way to say it, but, but the first chapter describes their response. The second chapter describes, this is how Paul went about that ministry among them. Is that a, a fair way to, to lay it out? I think it is. And one simple way to note that is the change in the pronoun in the first chapter, there is very much you, your, as he speaks to the Thessalonians. In the second chapter, it's much more we, as he describes his role, and he implies, of course, that uh, Silvanus, Silas was there. Um, Timothy is noted as one of the other writers of the letter, but historically, uh, what happens in Thessalonica, he doesn't seem to be at the center of it. But yes, the difference in chapter one is you, and chapter two is much more the pronoun. The operative pronoun is we. We did this, and we were among you, and we were ready to share with you. We worked night and day more than uh, multiple times, he speaks in that way. So let's take a look and see how Paul begins to lay that out. Again, we are in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. 
God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's the text from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Bars, to get started on this text, then it seems wise to review some historical context from the book of Acts. Paul refers to a lot of things, it seems, that happened in his time in Thessalonica and maybe some of the events surrounding that as well. What do we need to know from the book of Acts that's going to help us here in 1 Thessalonians 2? That's an excellent question, and this is one of those letters that allows us to find the historical context in the narrative of the book of Acts uh, more easily than some others do. And the the first hint is very clearly, it's more than a hint in verse 2, where he says, where Paul writes that we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. Now, Philippi was not Thessalonica, but in sequence, and I will say parenthetically for those who are listening to this conversation and wish to uh, turn in a Bible or another resource that they have to a missionary, a map of the missionary journeys of Paul, this would be part of his second missionary journey. The Lutheran Study Bible has this on page 1886. There is another map, and I wish I had the page number in front of me in the Concordia Self-Study Bible, and certainly in other resources, to see where he traveled. Now the gospel has come to Europe. This is, this is a singular event when we read in Acts chapter 16, when they've come over and moved from uh, Troas in Asia Minor and moved to Macedonia. Uh, some of our recent political history actually helps us by giving names giving modern names back to uh, back to areas that had their ancient names. But Paul and Silas and Timothy and, <clears throat> excuse me, are traveling, and they're stopping in different places. And when they come to Philippi, uh, they it, it does note by its omission that there is no synagogue there, which means that there is not in the dispersion of of Jews out of Jerusalem and the Holy Land, uh, there have not been enough of them to establish a congregation, and yet they find uh, believers and those open to hearing the gospel and do so. And that's where we meet Lydia down by the the riverside and who encourages uh, them to stay with her and and her bapti- she is baptized her family is baptized however because of other events uh, Paul and Silas get thrown into jail and they uh, protest even though they uh, have been thrown into jail that Paul says you can't do this to a Roman citizen so uh, we have the the wonderful story in the in between that of the jailer himself hearing their hymns and their prayers during the night and uh, the earthquake that happens, and the jailer himself, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the gospel is proclaimed, God's gifts and baptism to that man and to his family. And then we have this wonderful phrase, this is Acts 16, 34, he rejoiced along with his house, entire household that he had believed in God. Uh, though they appeal as Roman citizens, Uh, They are pretty much hurried out of town. They get a hasty apology, chapter 6, verse 39, uh, but they ask them to leave the city. They say goodbye to Lydia. Certainly they say goodbye to the jailer, even though he's not named, and they move on to Thessalonica. They pass through some other towns. They're mentioned here in the narrative by Luke, but no emphasis on ministry or proclaiming the gospel there. But when they come to Thessalonica, there is a synagogue of the Jews, 
and we get a very specific note that for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Uh, the language here in Acts 17 sounds very much to me like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you, that Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. But they speak of Christ, uh, crucified, but raised from the dead, and this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the promised, the prime, promised Messiah. The response in Thessalonica is positive. Some are persuaded, some who are Greeks, some women, and yet the Jews, uh, at least the Jewish leaders of the town, form a mob, and they storm the house or surround the house, attack the house where they are staying with Jason, and drag them in front of the city authorities, this wonderful, wonderful phrase, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I mean, they're using that phrase as accusation, but what a wonderful way to express what the gospel is doing across uh, the entire Mediterranean basin after Pentecost. And so when they uh, discover or when they are accused of having another king, when they are accused of that, they uh, they try to give them safety for a time with Jason by taking a bond or money or security. But the brothers encourage Paul and Silas to move on to Berea. And, and I have to add, I know I've said a lot about this, this context, but Berea it has, this, has this terrific mention of the Jews are more noble there than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Examining the scriptures daily. First, it's the Old Testament scriptures that they are looking at. They are looking at all the promises and say what Paul is saying about this Jesus is true. And what a model for us today. I know we're talking about the Thessalonians and, and the letter to the Thessalonians, but the Bereans don't get a letter. So so we, we, will, we will mention them and affirm uh, that uh, their response at this point. And one more parenthetical comment within the parenthetical comment, there is a congregation in Godrich, Ontario, on the shores of Lake Huron, that is called Berea by the Water Lutheran Church. It was the congregation that my father served in the 70s into the early 80s, uh, where I lived when I was in college and, and began seminary. So that's pretty special to me. Well, and, and you may not remember this, Pastor Barzer. Maybe you do. Uh, you, you you confirmed me. You remember that, I'm sure. Of course. But, but yeah. you you preached you preached on the Bereans for my confirmation sermon, and and the title was to be a Berean, just for as a parenthetical comment within inside <laughs> inside two other parenthetical comments. So so that that text stands out to me as as well. So so that historical context is is very important for what Paul is doing here in 1 Thessalonians 2. And and he brings up particularly how they'd been shamefully treated at Philippi, but that shameful treatment really continued into Thessalonica. It and and there's even you know you, you brought up the Bereans the Bereans who are of a more noble character, but the Thessalonian troublemakers actually follow them to Berea and and right. kick them out of there as well. So so within well, well, why why does Paul bring this up at this point? How did, how does that relate to what he's telling them about his ministry among them there in Thessalonica? Well, it begins in verse one here in chapter two when he says, "You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain." Uh, this is the same word in vain that that is used in or or form of it is used in uh, Philippians chapter two where Paul uses language to say that uh, he emptied himself. And it's the, it's the same word that's there. It would seem futility. Was it futile that I spent such a short time, three Sabbaths with you, and uh, we were forced to leave town and move on? But no, it was not in vain. And it gave us the opportunity, now it's in the end of verse 2, to, to have boldness to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of this conflict. It, it, did, not, it did not prevent it. Uh, perhaps it, it even made it 
maybe it was, may I use this phrase? It was sharper iron that, that it made it possible that this, there was an urgency that they had to hear this good news before, before things turn, before there is this uh, shameful treatment, before they are jailed. And perhaps it could have been worse. It certainly could have been. Uh, but, but it's not in vain that he spent his time with them. He was able to, the gospel entrusted to him, to them as apostles, is now delivered to and by the Spirit's work held and believed and confessed and proclaimed by this congregation that we know as the Thessalonians. You, you see, again, what we looked at yesterday, the power of the gospel here, that even in the midst of this shameful treatment that's following Paul from city to city, still the gospel does its work. And it, it does, it sharpens people. It sharpens Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy. It sharpens the Thessalonians who hear it, this, this boldness that comes out in the midst of this conflict. Maybe a, just a, a question to see what you think here. Is there a is there maybe a backstory that we don't find out from the book of Acts in terms of what's being said against Paul? Is And I know this is perhaps a bit of speculation, but, but Paul really seems, he's not defensive, but he is building a defense of his ministry here. Are, are there attacks against him in Thessalonica that he's, he's responding to? Well, that's a, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful question. I think some of the rest of the chapter is, is his defense for things implied when he will say in verse five that we didn't come with a pretext for greed. Uh, We didn't come seeking glory from others. Uh, We could have made demands. We, we could have said, and, and Paul does use the language of we are apostles at different times, especially to the Corinthians, but his contrast then is, is uh, of gentleness and affection for them. Uh, the, the labor, the toil, this is moving on into verse 9, that rather we worked night and day, that they weren't a burden. They were perhaps Paul and Silas, what we might call worker priests. They somehow uh, managed to earn some money besides, rather than uh, taking advantage of those early believers. I, I, did, I did come across this in some of my, my own reading, that, that uh, this goes back to both verse 6 about uh, the greed and the glory and making demands, and also in verse 9, that there were no paid teachers in the Jewish community of the Middle East, but the Romans did have them. They would pay people just to listen to them. Maybe this is almost to the end of chapter 17 in, in Acts, where he's on, uh, at the, uh, at, in Athens there. But, but here he's reminding them, I didn't come expecting money from you. I didn't make any demands of you. It is, it is to, live, to live in such a way, uh, to live uh, so, so strongly, and and with such uh, with such clarity that I am only here to be a servant of Christ to bring you the gospel, and how I would pray that you and I as pastors and our brother pastors would have that same uh, that same mindset and that sa- and be perceived in such a way that this is why God has placed you in Smithville, Texas, and me in San Antonio, Texas, and others. In, in so many different places in our, in our country and around the world, that we might be those who would share the good news, the good news of salvation in Christ. And that is what Paul is there to do. And, and he, he says it here in this chapter in a way that at least strikes my ears as a little unique. He talks about it. It shows up for the first time in this chapter, though not the last, in verse 2, where he says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. And that phrase gets used again a couple more times in the section that we're looking at. That's generally not the way that I think it's phrased in the New Testament. And I didn't do an extensive study, but you know, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, just the gospel, but the, the gospel of God stands out as a, a bit unique to me. Pastor Bars, what what should we get from that, the gospel of God? 
Well, as I as I did my reading and study and preparing that, it struck me the same way. And, and I, I some of it was underlined already. So so I'm thinking I had thought about this before and wondered about this. But but I I read through all of First Thessalonians and and there are seven references with gospel in them. Um, one is a little different. It is the good news of your faith. And it is the same gospel word, the word that we translate as gospel, but that's in 3 verse 6. But three times in chapter 2, it's the gospel of God. And, and this is rather unique in all of the New Testament. Uh, it does show up in the beginning of Mark, of, of Mark's gospel. It is twice, both at the beginning and near the end of Romans, and it is once in 1 Peter 4. So uh, four times in all the rest of the New Testament, and three times alone in this one chapter. So why is it the gospel of God? Uh, the the oyangelion uh, tutheu, this good news of God. It is God's good news. It is, he is the source of it. It originates from him. He is always the object, excuse me, the subject, and we are the object. He is the deliverer of the good news to us. Uh, this is, as we journey through this Advent season, uh, and this is not a by the way, this is something to, to look forward to, when the angel appears to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem and says, I have good news for you. I have an oyangelion for you. I have the good news that the Savior has finally been born. But I think to hear the gospel of God is to remind us that once more it is from God, it is of God, he, he defines it, he gives it its content, and as Paul will say in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And that's what Paul is sharing with the Thessalonians as well. He uses mm -hmm. other phrases in the letter. He says, our gospel. He says, the gospel. One time he says, the gospel of Christ. But, but it, is, it is interesting, and I think interesting because the Thessalonians need to know once more that Paul hasn't come to deliver his own message. He hasn't come to be the one that they would look to as the source of their faith or their faithfulness as, as they hold to the gospel, but it is the gospel of God that they are given. Yeah, that, the phrase gospel of God is, is important just to ponder for a moment, because we don't often think about how we use the word of in, in English. I, I didn't realize how many different ways we use the word of in English until I studied foreign languages, and I had to actually think about it. But the word, the term gospel of God could, could be understood in, in different ways. And I think you've laid out for us nicely what, how we should understand it, that the gospel of God means it is the gospel that belongs to God. He is the one who gives it. It's the gospel defined by God. He is the the source of it. And I think and I, and I think you touched on this, but maybe we could say a little bit more, but it's also the gospel about God or that or that tells of God as well. Not only is he the source, but he is the the content of it as well. I mean, does that does that make sense the the distinctions that I'm drawing there, Pastor Bars? Clearly it does. In fact, I in one of my notes in in red in red ink, so it stands out a little bit more for me, is about the gospel about God. God who, and we hear it in so many ways throughout the New Testament, uh, and, but truly even in the Old Testament, but the God who loved the world so much, uh, the God who, who is love, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us in, in John's uh, letter, in the first letter of, of John. The gospel about God, God acting, the Father sending his Son, the Word becoming flesh, the Christmas Day gospel for the incarnation of our Lord. It's, it's not only the shepherds hearing the good news outside of Bethlehem and hurrying to see the child, but as we are journeying through Advent, how we will, how we will gather for the festival of our Lord's incarnation and hear that the Word has become flesh and we have seen his glory. It is the gospel about God who reaches out to sinners, to the lost, to, to those who are, who are away from home. It is the gospel that 
is so wonderfully and vividly expressed as uh, the shepherd who searches for his sheep, the woman who seeks her, her lost coin, the father who welcomes home one son and who is ready to welcome an older son uh, back into his place in the family. The gospel about God who loved each of us, who loved all the world, who loved us in a concrete way by giving his son who will go to the cross for us. That's the gospel about God, and it's the gospel for you and me. All that he does, he does not for himself. He does for us, for us sinners, to bring us lost sheep back into his fold. That's the gospel that Paul went to Thessalonica and proclaimed among them. It's the gospel we're looking at here on Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Tuesday, December 3rd, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor Mark Bars of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Bars, prior to the break, we looked at the gospel of God in verse 2. It shows up later in chapter 2 as well. And in verse 3, then Paul, Paul begins saying, our appeal does not spring from error, impurity, attempts to deceive. What, what's he talking about with this appeal in verse 3? The the appeal is, I think it can be understood in a different, in a variety of ways. It, it is partly, it is the, the appeal of the gospel itself, certainly. And, and to, it does not spring from any, any motives that could be negative in any way. In fact, the last one, when he says deceive, is a word, uh, dolo, which could be bait or trap. And it, it does strike me that this is his, his way of making sure that the Thessalonians, he is no longer with them. They understand that what he delivered to them, the good news that he was privileged to share with them, was not to deceive them in any way. It wasn't to, uh, for him to gain anything from it. It was, it was for their good, for their eternal good, and for their blessing. Uh, that's what it is. This appeal, uh, the, the word that's used in appeal is an encouragement, but it can even mean an encouragement to soldiers who are going into battle. Now, part of their encouragement, part of Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians, is that they remain faithful. The persecution that he knew, uh, the struggles, the shameful treatment that was not only Philippi, but being run out of Thessalonica too early, uh, they are still dealing with this as they as they are gathered as the body of Christ in that place. So he appeals to them. He encourages them. I I don't want to push that too much about soldiers going into battle, but the word has, has roots in, in that use. And, and so he is, uh, he's been entrusted with the gospel. He's been, he's been entrusted. uh, That word has the, the root for uh, faith in it. Uh, Trust is there. It is that word that we see throughout the New Testament, and, and this, is, this is where he will make clear that there was no ulterior motive. It is not to please man, to please them, to please uh, anyone. He could have changed his message uh, on any number of occasions to please men, and the treatment that he received and that the church received after him would have, would have, would have been significantly different, but Paul could not, and he would not do that but only, only to please God, only to please the one who has given him and seen that he is fit for this role, approved by God, fit for, the mess- for to carry the message and to deliver the message of salvation. He goes on to say much the same thing 
in verse five. It was not. It was not for flattery. It was not uh, greed. I mentioned. I mentioned a little while ago that he did not come to seek pay, as others across the Roman Empire might have done. But then he uses he uses other language, which is so poignant and, and so affectionate when he speaks of. We were gentle among you. I'm in verse 7 now, that we were like a nursing mother taking care of her own child. Uh, first of all, that, uh, that taking care of actually has the language of warming, warming the child. And, and for those of us and you and I, uh, uh, fathers, and I get the privilege of being a grandfather now, uh, to watch a mother to watch my bride, to watch your bride, uh, nurturing and caring for the child, especially the newborn child, but, but to, to warm that child. That was the gentleness among you. This, this, could have, uh, this language, by the way, could have been where it says like a nursing mother. Uh, that, that could be a nursing one, and there were within that culture there were wet nurses where a woman was hired to nurse the children. I think the contrast that Paul is drawing with the Thessalonians, again, because he did not come out of greed or out of, out of any, uh, to seek any gain for himself, he's showing his genuine love and care in this gentleness, affectionately desirous to, to nurture their faith, to bring them to the gospel, to share not only, here's the second time, in verse 8, the gospel of God, but also our very own souls, our very own selves, our very lives. That is how dear you were to us, how beloved you were to us. The word agape is, is in the word beloved there. Uh, he, has, he has that affection for the Thessalonians. How remarkable it is that in such a short time, there was such a strong bond that that Paul, that God has given Paul to have toward the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians toward Paul. His letter, his two letters are affirming that and comforting and encouraging them since he cannot be present with them. God, the Holy Spirit is using these uh, to offer that great encouragement and and encouragement that the church, as we read these uh, nearly 2,000 years later, uh, that we still need to hear. This is, this is the the great treasure that our God has given to us, and this is the care that He shows towards us. Hmm. I, I'm I'm reminded again of the how Paul in, in the first chapter talked about the power that is there in the gospel that he preached, and and in the first chapter the power was very evident in the fact that the Thessalonians came to faith, and and such a bold faith, a steadfast faith that held on in the face of persecution, and I think you see that power. Here as well, in a different sense, power that not only brings an individual to faith, but power then that that binds the church together as the family of God. And as you said, this was such a, a short time that Paul was there, and yet this bond that he had with the Thessalonians was so strong. It it reminds me of, of our Lord's language in the Gospels where he talks about who his mother and brothers and sisters are, and mm-hmm. he points yes. to those who who trust his word. And so you see that how, you know, and again, it, I mean, it, and I'm, I'm thinking through the, the third article of the creed as well, and, and that we believe in the, the Holy Christian church and, and the way that Luther talks about this, that the Holy Spirit doesn't just call me by the gospel, but he calls the whole Christian church by the gospel and he joins me together with it. This is, this is not something that, that man could do to, to form bonds like this in su- such a short time. This, this is the work of God himself. And, and he does it in, in such such caring ways. You you get this language of the the nursing mother, the gentleness that we see in a mother. This familial relationship that Paul has with the Thessalonians, and and then he 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 continues with the the familial language as as well. But he he shifts it now to a, a father later on. Uh, Pastor Bars, feel free to to come back on anything that I, that I said, or also you know talk about the the way that Paul shifts into the language of of how he acted as a father among them also. Of course. So, so the mother language it has the gentleness to it, and, and the father language is uh, verse 11, you know how like a father with his children, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to uh, encourage you to stay on course, to continue on your course. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that there's one is gentle and one is uh, with a stronger, even a harsher voice. It's not that at all. It is it is a different role as as fathers speak and guide and encourage their children and 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 hold on to them as as they as they journey on. He he wants this uh, course or this conduct to continue. And Paul, as as a father or like a father, will will express that longing for these believers in Thessalonica that they will continue in, in the faith given to them. As you said back in, in chapter one, uh, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to, to leave behind what is, what is futile and empty and to serve the living and true God. How, how wonderful that is. And, and in our world, uh, there are there are many that surround us who who have their idols they they may not be carved out of wood or stone or cast out of bronze uh, but there are many with with idols and for them to first of all hear this good news by the spirit's work uh, believe it confess it and and live it paul would encourage as he encourages the thessalonians in this letter he would encourage all of us and I think particularly our newer brothers and sisters in Christ, even, even those who have left behind some strong idols. Uh, we, we have a, a member here in our congregation. It, it just amazes me that, that God would bring a young man from Iran uh, into, into San Antonio and uh, give us the privilege of sharing the gospel with him. He, he was a believer, but he is, but he is now a Lutheran believer, uh, grounded, grounded in, in the faith. Uh, somebody who has left behind and his family has left him behind uh, because of his, his desire to know Christ and to follow Christ. Hmm. Thanks be to God when we get to see those, those living examples of, of exactly what Paul is talking about here. I want to dig a little more into this, this mother-father uh, contrast, or maybe maybe better, uh, a compliment, not compliment like I say compliment something nice is about good. you. I like that. Yeah, yeah, but but compliment that they go together. How how are both of these the Paul's ministry among them as as a mother and Paul's ministry as a, a father? How are are both of these, or why were both of them necessary for the Thessalonians, and how do those roles continue to remain necessary for our lives as Christians today? Well, from what we know in the book of Acts, uh, there, the experience that these new believers in Thessalonica had was, was rather traumatic. Uh, it was dramatic and traumatic that, that they were themselves, uh, when, when others are attacking them and attacking Paul, attacking Silas, attacking those who shared the gospel with them, it would be very easy to to step back. It would be very easy to, to be so cautious that uh, my faith will, will be hidden and not visibly and vocally expressed. Paul encourages them with the gentleness of a, of a nurturing mother who cares for her children uh, to, to be like that to the Thessalonians, to be separated from them physically and geographically, to be separated from them in a short, fairly short amount of time, it seems, perhaps only a matter of months. Maybe that's part of why there is urgency for him to say, I remind you how a mother is, and, and I want to be that to you, to know that you are cared for and nurtured, and to be like a father to you, a father who, who says, Hang on, uh, be be strong in this course, in this in this way of conduct. Now, now that sounds that sounds like law language. I'm just saying that's the that's the language that, that they heard behind those verbs when when they heard them and received this and received this letter from from him. They they heard it in such a way, but that too had to be, and of course it is. It is grounded in the gospel. They he was given the privilege to be a proclaimer 
to be a herald of the gospel. God provided the message, and God gave them uh, this faith to cling to this, to cling to this good news. And now a mother who nurtures, a father who encourages, who says, continue on, uh, be faithful in your, in your walk of faith. In, in these Advent days, as we wait for and, and long for, as I, as I like to say, uh, for the first appearing as though it happened for the first time, as though we were those waiting for God to keep his promise. We also long for our Lord's final promise, not only his first promise, but his final promise that he will return and gather his church to himself. The Thessalonians 2,000 years ago, their souls are with our Lord. Uh, they, they know his presence, and yet they still long for what the church, the visible church on earth, longs for, that, that our our journeying, our faithfulness, our continuing on this course, our uh, being faithful in Christ and, and holding on to his promises. Back to chapter one, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from, from all that would, would cause us to fear and be uncertain. His promises are strong and clear, and they are certain. His word conveys that to us, and so we cling to that. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, as we wait during these Advent days for our Lord's first promise as well as for his final promise. And and as we do that, we need both of these types of, of care, the care that a mother would give, the care that a father would give. And I like the way that you you show how they complement each other, that that a mother is one who who nurtures, a father is one who encourages, who exhorts, and, and not that there's not overlap, but but generally the image that's coming to my mind is that think of, of children when when they come home, they, they come home into into the mother's warm embrace, the nurture, the the knowing that they're cared for. And then, as they're sent out, this is this is the father who's who's encouraging them, who's and pushing them out the doors. Maybe not the exact right way to think about it, mm-hmm. but but saying, "Look, now now go out in, into the world, strengthened by what you've received here at home." And so, I think that that image of of coming home as a family and and receiving that care together as the family of God, and then being sent out into the world to not not only in a not only with the law that that this is how I am to serve my neighbor but also standing in the gospel knowing the promises that will not forsake me even as I live out my vocation that that this constant uh, back and forth coming and going of our lives as Christians to the the nurturing care of a mother the the encouragement the the exhortation of a father both of these are are playing out in our lives as Christians and especially especially during this this advent season as we wait for for our lord's return the the second coming even as we prepare and, and anticipate to celebrate his his first coming. I like the way the way you said that that we we long for that first coming as if we were there. And and still we long for that second coming as as the Lord has promised just as he had promised to the Thessalonians. And how so, good it Pat, is that go ahead. that the church is this is this place where that happens. I mean the language is of a home and of a family, but 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 why do we come together? Why do God's people, why do we need to come together? Why do we need each other uh, to be the body of Christ together, to, to, be, to be nurtured, to be cared for, to hear our sins forgiven and to receive our, our Lord's gifts, to be reminded of our baptism, I am a child of God, to hear and to receive and to taste and see that the Lord is good in the supper. And, and then to be sent out, to be sent out with his blessing. This section who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We know what we have already. And even as we long for it. And so, as you said, we, we leave, we are sent out with a father's voice, uh, reminding us who we are and, and, and calling us to be servants and witnesses in the vocations that God has given to us which may well then reflect the, fa- the mother-father image, but it, but it happens in the church. We don't often use this section of Scripture, at least I haven't, uh, to talk about 
why we need each other and what happens when we gather for the divine service. But, but I think it's there. And, and it's, a, it's a, new, a new way for me to ponder that and to consider that. Yeah, me, me as well. I, I have a so we've got just under eight minutes left here, Pastor Bars, and, and just a couple of questions that that I had jotted down prior to to having this conversation. And and you you mentioned something earlier that I think ties in about that that Lord grant that we would be able to say these things of ourselves as pastors that that our hearers would be able to say these things of of their pastor. And, and I, I guess my my question, and this is probably coming out of me just knowing that I am not perfect. When I, when I read this text, how, how do I hear this text? What do, what do I do with this text if I'm a pastor and I, I'm having trouble saying these things about myself or, or myself? Or, or how do I hear this text if, if I'm, I'm looking at it and I, I don't think that my pastor is these, these things? What, mm-hmm. how, how, do we, how do we grapple with those things in the church today? Well, we must. And, and you and I know, uh, though, though you are significantly younger than I am, that you and I know that this is one of the burdens that we carry as uh, those called to be ministers of word and sacraments, uh, that, that we must, I, I believe, must ask ourselves and, and ask uh, trusted brothers to, to guide us and encourage us and hold, hold us uh, accountable for, for the office given to be entrusted with the gospel, verse 5, approved by God, being fit for this, and then, and then entrusted with, with something so precious, um, not to, to gather uh, renown, not to, uh, not to bring a church together around uh, this man and his voice and his personality, but to be the, the servants that, that we are, are called and privileged to be. And when we feel unworthy, and we will, uh, to know that our Lord is the one who provides the message, who it is the gospel of God once more. It is, it is he who has given us uh, not only the privilege of serving him, but the very, the very message and and the words and the words to speak and and the voice to do so, even if that voice quavers at times, that that this is this is the voice of Christ and and to pray as I often pray on a Saturday evening that um, people will not hear me, but they will hear uh, Christ coming to them with his with his gifts, with his love, with his grace, with his forgiveness, with his with his calling to be, to be the new creation that he has made them in baptism and, and called them to be uh, by the gospel, mm. a privilege and, and a joy and a burden at, at times. But, but what a privilege, what a privilege. And for those who receive this, to have the vocation of hearers, uh, to sit in the pew Sunday after Sunday, to to come forward for the supper and and to kneel with hands or mouth open, um, to to rejoice that these gifts are there because the Lord of the Church stands behind them. That's that's what they receive. Uh, the man is only the conduit. Uh, he is he is not the one who gives the gifts, but but our Lord our Lord is using him as as a channel. And if and if they need to to say that and to cling to that because of any any difficulty any challenges any concerns that that too can be a place for a place for confidence even in the midst of of uncertainty the confidence that God is still delivering his gifts bringing his gifts to his church to his people and I, I think I think Paul would have would have said the same thing. Paul Paul knows that he's sinful, even as he says these things. Paul Paul knows that he's a sinner, and, and none of what he says about himself is meant to deny that. 
And so for, for the hearer to recognize that the Lord is the one giving the gifts and he does so through sinful men is, is a wonderful comfort. And so for the hearer to, to believe that, to believe God's work through this man, and then to pray for that man whom God has placed in the office. And then for the man who is in the office to, to take comfort in the fact that he too is a sinner forgiven by Christ and to make use of that gift of confession and absolution that the Lord has given to his church, I think are, are wonderful reminders and, and comforts as we hear this text today. Pastor Bars, we've got just under three minutes left on the morning. Any any points that we've not covered that you'd like to address or, or, or wrap this up for us and, and help us tie it to the, the season of Advent that we're celebrating right now? Mm-hmm. Well, here's my first thought from what we were just talking about. Just on Sunday, on the first Sunday of the Advent season, the confession of sins that we used here at Crown of Life was not the usual confession from divine service setting one, two, three, four, or five. It it was from the service called Compline, and it is a confession of a leader to the people and the people back to the leader. And, and two pastors here at, at Crown of Life spoke a confession of sins to the congregation. And the congregation spoke words of forgiveness. And then the congregation spoke its confession. And, and I spoke forgiveness from God to, to, the, to the people of God in this place. It's, we start the church here. It is a custom that I've had for not a great many years, but it's a custom I've followed for a number of years to begin the church here with that form of confession. Secondly, the church called to be faithful. The Thessalonians, in, in, their, in their challenges and their persecution that was going to happen that they would, would certainly experience in some way, calls us to to our, our place and our role within the church today, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I looked for a list, and, and it, it's com- countries that don't really surprise me, but from China to Algeria to Egypt, Egypt to Eritrea to India to Iran to Iraq to North Korea to Saudi Arabia to Sri Lanka to Turkey, those are 11 that are named on, on certain ways, uh, certain places, websites, and organizations, ministries that remind us of our call to, to join with the church. And, and yet to give you a, a word of hope that, that I'm borrowing something from a man named Gregory the Great, who lived in the late 500s and the early 600s, who said, seeds planted for a future harvest germinate more fruitfully if they are covered over with frost. Likewise, fire is increased by blowing on it that it might grow greater. Frost and fire. Uh, some of our hearers are in a region where there's more frost than there is in South Texas. But, but the church that has this gospel, has this treasure, uh, that frost will make it germinate even better. And fire, uh, the fire of the Spirit, the Spirit that blows uh, on the church, who blows life of faith and of faithfulness, uh, is blowing in our hearts and in the church so that many more will hear, believe, and confess Christ. That's our goal. That's our joy. That's our privilege. Pastor Mark Bars is the pastor at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, helping us this morning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Bars, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.